Demolish first the false dichotomy of clotted darkness threatening moonlight, that one is sane and holy in our sight. The other neither merely seems to be, on close analysis, a privileged view of questionable work. The shadowed text might shelter its fair share of terrors, true, but who are you to say so? Might the next dark angel's radically alternative perspective not apply as well? Efface hierarchical assumptions, and embrace that arbitrary madness which still lives between these penciled lines of dusk and dawn, the last postmodern haunt of chaos spawn. Anne K. Schrader, Deconstructing Night. We are in a facility the film calls Area X, the base for the organization called Southern Reach. In the novel, Southern Reach has been involved with this eldritch landscape for three decades. In the film, however, the lighthouse was struck only three years ago. And I imagine that this facility is much more clean and new than it would appear in the novel. The novel begins already inside what the film calls the Shimmer, beyond the events we see here. Lena sits in a chair, by a bed, in a sterile room, one of its walls glass. She holds the water bottle that Ventress gave her last minute, but has yet to open it. She has just asked why she's talking to a psychiatrist. In the script, Dr. Ventress answers, because I'm in charge of the facility you're in. She doesn't say this in the film, but Lena says, Am I in a psychiatric hospital? Second two, angle on Ventress, leaning against the desk-slash-cabinet opposite the bed. Dr. Ventress. No. Lena, off-screen. Then what? Angle on Lena. Lena, continued. Where Where am am I? I? Where's my husband? Angle on Ventress. Dr. Ventress ignores the question. The script says she takes the chair opposite Lena and sits down, but she remains by the cabinet. In the script, this is more of an interrogation than a hospital bedroom. She looks down at the paper she holds. In the script, Dr. Ventress, you're a biologist? Lena, so what? Dr. Ventress, you completed a doctorate at Johns Hopkins? It goes a little differently in the film. Ventress, you served served in the the military military for seven years. years. Ventress speaks with a monotone. Later, Lena will volunteer to enter the Shimmer, so Ventress's reasons for asking about Lena's military background are not clear. Why Southern Reach captured Lena is not entirely clear yet. But we will get more into that in the next few minutes. Elizabeth Brainick, writing for the Washington Post, 12th March 2018, says this film is, quote, haunted by a malignance about which little is known, though its presence is ubiquitous and its expressions profuse, end quote. Note the phrase. She does not refer to the location within the film as haunted but the film itself. Brainig references another Washington Post piece by Alyssa Rosenberg, 23rd February 2018, in which Rosenberg describes the plot and then, well, quote, Garland's adaptation of the first book in Jeff Vandermeer's trilogy follows Lena, a biologist who learns about Area X after her husband Kane, Oscar Isaac, returns from an exploratory mission to the region both profoundly changed and seriously ill, long after Lena had presumed him dead. She joins the next team to go in, headed by Dr. Ventress, Jennifer Jason Lee, I made up of Anya, Gina Rodriguez, Cass, Tubit Novotny, and Josie, Tessa Thompson, in hopes of understanding what happened to Kane during this year away. What she discovers exceeds all of her expectations and upends the laws of nature she knew to be fixed. Even though everything I wrote in the preceding paragraph is strictly true, it feels wholly inadequate to me, and honestly besides the point. Yes, Lena learns things about how Area X functions, and why the plants and animals that she finds there seem to be evolving and changing in strange ways. Yes, both she and we uncover disturbing details about Kane's fate. But Annihilation is a profound and terrifying movie precisely because it's about an encounter with something that defies comprehension, and that operates according to none of the rules or known impulses that we as humans know how to respond to. Science fiction and horror movies often function in similar ways. 
which is why the two genres so often crossbreed to such great success. Something seems awry, or something inexplicable happens, posing an immediate danger to our characters and a more fundamental danger to what we believe we know to be true about the world. Our heroes investigate, sometimes cautiously, sometimes intrepidly, and when they find out what is happening to them, they are either saved or doomed. Either way, our sense of order, if not control, is restored. The world makes sense again, even if it does so in dismaying fashion. End quote. Back to Brainy. Quote, the story's central drama concerns the protagonist's efforts to come to terms with something they can't, as mere humans, understand. It certainly leaves a confusing impression. It was only a few days after seeing Annihilation that its curious moral logic began to creep, fungus-like, across my conscience. I've begun to think that the particular character of that formless, nameless danger, its eerie, morbid bounty, makes it an excellent villain for our moment. End quote. That is the kind of vaguely non-specific political jab that makes for interesting copy but does not, at least not yet, make a particular statement. Bringing explains later, quote, In your average sci-fi horror tale, the villain must be opposed because it is destructive. Consider the metropole-crushing wrath of the Cloverfield monster, for example, or the civilization-ending ravages of the typical zombie virus outbreak. In those cases, the moral imperatives are clear. If the heroes, and perhaps all of humanity, are to survive then the alien or pathogen or interdimensional being in question must be stopped. The options are life and death, and it's obvious to both audiences and characters which choice is right. But Annihilation goes out of its way to make the decision a little more ambiguous. What Lena and her team find inside the Shimmer is not destruction, but life. Vast, flowering, superabundant life. Grass grows supple and high, wildlife roams free and unafraid among former outposts of human occupation. Blossoms of every conceivable shape and color bejewel the foliage. Orchids alongside roses alongside Ranunculi. There are terrible things too. A crocodile with shark's teeth, a bear with the cry of a dying woman. The corpse of a former explorer evidently vivisected by Cain himself. But there are also beautiful things. Cascades of high-climbing ivy, ivory-colored deer with delicately blooming antlers. Flowering organic topiaries in the graceful shape of the human body. As Lena herself reports, the Shimmer isn't destroying anything. It's making something new, including doubles of its intrepid visitors. It would be easy to read an Edenic metaphor into Annihilation. Here is new growth, new creation, a new man, and, it turns out, a new woman. Lena doesn't remember eating while inside the Shimmer. It would appear that one doesn't need to. That the Shimmer itself sustains life by its very nature. Thus, there is no scarcity within its opaline borders. You could presumably live a long time there in some form or another, if you could bear it. End quote. And now we are getting somewhere. Perhaps the problem here is that the impulse of many, including film reviewers, is to assume a lack of message. A filmmaker, an actor, a celebrity speaks out about the environment, about public policy, about speaking out even. And numerous posts online will call for them to stay out of politics, to shut up and dance like the trained monkeys they are. I deliberately make that hyperbolic, but the tone is not inaccurate. We see a horror film and we want to be scared, and I mean, unfortunately, the average viewer. We want to be entertained. We do not want to be preached at. We do not want a message about the environment in our killer birds or killer Sasquatch film. We do not want our horror to be feminist. Slasher film, for example, can get away with a lot of feminist push with The Final Girl because that particular subgenre is built on some very conservative roots. It balances itself out rather than push too far in one direction. Brainy continues regarding Annihilation's potential message about plenty. Quote, which is perhaps the clever remark Annihilation makes about our current moment. 
bounty and abundance are everywhere around us and are usually adduced as positive indicators for society. Look at all the things we have and all the new things being produced and circulated every day. More than we could ever use, more than we could ever want. Media showcases the kind of excess the United States is world famous for. From the gold-plated interiors of Trump's properties to the breezy white opulence of the Kardashians' West Coast digs. Between the cheap and ever-changing commodities lining store shelves and landfills and the less attainable but still enviable products displayed among the likes of the rich kids of Instagram, it's hard to escape the feeling that our world is overflowing with plenty. Yet not all plenitude fosters a sense of peaceful ease. There's a point at which overproduction and the constant generation of novel things begins to induce a feeling of deep disorder, chaos, and unease. Flourishing is a good thing. Human flourishing, that is. But disease, too, can flourish. The profuse growth of something can come at the expense of humankind. End quote. All fiction, but especially science fiction, is inherently political. Why tell a story if you do not have something to say is the thing. I have argued in my blog, in numerous film reviews on YouTube, in my podcast, that any film will tell you something about the time and place it was made. First Blood rises out of an anti-war novel in response to Vietnam. Rambo pushes in the opposite direction because Reagan excess means we can fight Vietnam again and win this time. Rainbow 3 piles on the jingoism, as do many other action films from the 1980s. Western film, and I mean films from the West, but also in regards to action films, birthed out of tropes from Westerns as well, reifies a sense of American exceptionalism throughout that decade. The 90s get a bit muddled with room for conspiracies, for family dramas, for visual effects-laden blockbusters. Then the war on terror brings space for deliberately muddled and muddy stories where maybe the protagonist and antagonist are not so different. Even Star Wars with Attack of the Clones offers up a hero's seduction by the villain in the midst of a political war started by a politician who's lying about his motives. I am painting in broad strokes here because much of this is made of ideas I've discussed numerous places before. What matters in regards to Annihilation is why it is the thing that it is. And never mind Jeff Vandermeer's stated motivations, never mind Alex Garland's. What we have in Annihilation is the story of five women venturing into the unknown. Science fiction, horror, Women up against the corruption of nature itself, represented initially by the arrival of a corrupted male, by the way, when Cain wanders home. And it is a losing battle, even up to and beyond the point at which it is seemingly won. When politicians and scientists debate the existence of, effects of, and response to climate change, and so-called social justice warriors and or feminists advance the power of women, is it a surprise that a story like this exists? Slasher films emerged as a popular form after second-wave feminism. The action films of the 80s were born out of decades of westerns and America's hegemonic decline after Vietnam. Vandermeer's novel Annihilation was published in 2014. This film was produced in 2016, was released in 2018. From well after Occupy Wall Street through the end of Obama's term as president to Donald Trump to hashtag MeToo. What is the villain of Annihilation? Is this man versus man? Man versus nature, man versus himself, woman versus herself, as it were? Is the existential horror of annihilation really about the erasure of the individual when facing the world, facing nature, facing society, facing a politically divided world on the potential brink of its own destruction? Keep in mind, Vandermeer is American, Garland is English, but also American politics and British politics tend to intermingle, do they not? Where the upstart child goes, so goes the old mother. It is early in the film to really be talking about overarching meaning, about message, but also it is perhaps never too early to talk about such things. Let us return again to Rosenberg. Quote, 
Ultimately, though, the movie refuses to render the world comprehensible again. Every step forward and every new piece of information render the world inside Area X, and its implications for all human knowledge more mystifying. In Annihilation, survival is less a matter of mastery and rationalization than it is of profound acceptance. People who hope to wrestle the phenomenon of the Shimmer into something they can understand are doomed to bafflement or madness. It's those who are willing to surrender who are best equipped to survive or evolve. Modern movies, perhaps as a reflection of modern society, don't have much truck with the sometimes twin emotions of awe and terror. That makes sense. A lot of the things that our ancestors were powerless to explain and address have been assessed and conquered. We know why eclipses and earthquakes happen and how to treat disease. The world feels smaller and more manageable to us. That's often to the good. No one should have to die from folk healing or to be driven insane with fear over natural phenomena. But at the same time, I sometimes wonder if our sense of certainty renders us more vulnerable to the unexpected. I don't know that our predecessors would be as surprised and wounded by the ascension of a mad king as contemporary Americans are by an unexpected election result. Annihilation is the first movie I've seen in a very long time that is dedicated to restoring our senses of awe and terror. It is full of extremely effective horrors that are frightening, not because they are gory, or even particularly because they make you jump, though some of them will. Rather, they are unsettling because they frequently pair pain with beauty, or competence with a sense of fundamental despair. Annihilation is not a movie that is designed to make you or its characters feel better, nor is it intended to make you feel worse in a way that reinforces a valuable political point or an important social phenomenon. Movies that do those things can be immensely valuable. That's simply not Garland's project here. Instead, Annihilation is about making you feel small, while also using beauty and mystery to draw you to the thing that emphasizes your smallness and your fear. End quote. And then let us drift over to J.G. Ballard himself. From his essay, The Coming of the Unconscious. Quote, The images of surrealism are the iconography of inner space, popularly regarded as a lurid manifestation of fantastic art concerned with states of dream and hallucination. Surrealism is the first movement, in the words of Odilon Redon, to place the logic of the visible at the service of the invisible. This calculated submission of the impulses and fantasies of our inner lives to the rigors of time and space, to the formal inquisition of the sciences, psychoanalysis preeminent among them, produces a heightened or alternative reality beyond that familiar to our sight or senses. What uniquely characterizes this fusion of the outer world of reality and the inner world of the psyche is its redemptive and therapeutic power. To move through these landscapes is a journey of return to one's innermost being. End quote. Lena, who lost her husband and cheated on him, possibly before, definitely after, is about to volunteer in the next few minutes of the film to go on the same presumably suicidal mission that her husband went on. She might see in the women around her reflections of herself, and they will die, one by one, and in the end, she will quite literally come face to face with herself in a balletic sequence that, if no other sequence does, lifts the film firmly into the realm of cinematic art. Regardless of the political, regardless of the environmental, this film is using the small, the individual, as microcosm for something much bigger, much more universal. It begs us to pay attention and perhaps to take stock. Second 12, Angle on Lena. Her right hand is poised at the lid to the water bottle like she means to open it. Lena, I'm, I'm a professor from Johns Hopkins. Hopkins. I want to know what the, the fuck I'm doing, doing here. She does not open the bottle. Instead, she sets it down on the floor. Angle on Ventress. 
Dr. Ventress. Your research area is the genetically programmed life cycle of a cell. Now it is Lena's turn to ignore the question. Angle on Lena. Lena leans forward, enunciates. Where is my husband? Second 25, angle from hallway through the glass so everything is tinted blue. The door frame and handle divides the image. Lena sits to the left, Ventress stands to the right. As she speaks, she takes a few steps toward the glass, past the desk. Dr. Ventress. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd like, like to, to talk, talk about, about Sergeant Kane. Ventress stops past the desk and turns to face Lena. Dr. Ventress continued. When, when did, did he arrive, arrive back, back home? home? Second 31, close on Lena. An abrupt lighting change and abrupt change of angle. A lot of setups for this one scene. In the script, Lena answers, That depends how long I've been here. Dr. Ventress says nothing. Lena says, I think it was yesterday. In the film, Lena is more defiant. I wonder if this version of this scene was filmed after they had already decided to cut the sequence, which was filmed, that will come soon with Lena trying to escape. This defiance is more cerebral, less action film. Lena, I want to see a lawyer. lawyer. Close on Ventress, and getting closer... She's leaning on the supporting piece on the other end of the desk slash cabinet now. Dr. Ventress, you're not, not going to be able to see, see a lawyer. Second 37, close on Lena. She swallows, perhaps feeling sick again, perhaps realizing that she has no power here. Second 40, she looks down, supports herself with her right arm on her leg. Second 41, close on Ventress. She's playing with the pages in her hands now. Dr. Ventress, continued. Did, Did he explain, explain how he got, got back? Second 43, another angle. Close on Lena, but now low and from her left. Beat. Lena. No. Close on Ventress. Dr. Ventress. Did, Did he, he contact, contact you at you any, any point, point while he was away? Angle on Lena. The new low angle. And it moves left, and she leans more toward camera. It is worth noting, especially in this moment, that Lena's face remains poorly lit throughout this scene. While Ventress is well lit. In the script, Lena says, no, he left. And whatever he was doing, whatever Spec Ops mission... That was the last I heard until it reappeared. And Dr. Venture says he didn't tell you what he was doing or where he was going. In the film, Lena. No. Lena shakes her head. Dr. Ventress. What, what did, did he, he tell you about, about his mission, mission when he returned? Lena. Nothing. Nothing. Angle on Ventress. Dr. Ventress. What, what about before he left? Did, did he, he ever mention where, where he was going? going? And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. Thank you.